1: Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR 1680, Ada Grand Rapids, or streaming live at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Professor Jeremy Bean.
0: Just Jeremy Bean is fine, but thank you.
1: And Dr. Professor Luke Galen.
2: I'll retain both those titles.
1: I figured you would. Uh, so, fellas, we have Christmas coming up soon. And as a part of that, there's strife. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men, and battles. Battles over lots of ridiculous little things mostly including signs at this time of year.
0: Yeah. Well, I I just before we go into the war on Christmas and all the signage and everything, mm-hmm. I I just want to declare that I am I am one atheist that is against the war on Christmas chicken. Uh yeah, I just, you know, don't have time to be upset about whether or not somebody says merry christmas or happy holidays. I quite frankly get tired of the whole thing. But that's just me.
1: No, and, and I agree and I love Christmas and, um, you know, when I walk into Costco and they say Merry Christmas, usually they say Happy Holidays. But if they say Merry Christmas, it's like someone saying God bless you after you sneeze. You take it in the way it's meant. Here we have some examples of people who are um, – seem to be using their blessings as a bit of a, a way to start a fight. The Center for Family Development, a Catholic-based nonprofit in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, is going to start a bus ad campaign to show that they believe the I believe to campaign which consists of 10 buses in the Washington DC area with side posters and 10 buses with tail posters and 200 with interior posters.
0: I'm assuming they're not professing belief in Santa Claus or No, Christmas no, Spirit. no. They
1: they say things like why well, believe? because I created you and I love oh. you for goodness sake. Signed God. And this is being done, as Joellen Murphy says, our goal is to counteract the AHA, that's the American Humanist Association, with a positive, upbeat ad that identifies God as our true and loving creator. Now, clearly, the AHA has done and said something nasty that needs to be combated with a positive message, right? What have they done? Well, the AHA is running their own bus campaign um, around Washington, D.C., $40,000 holiday ad campaign that started last month. And what their ads say is, quote, why believe in a god? Just be good for goodness sake. OK. Those evil monsters. It's about time someone came out with a positive message to combat that kind of heresy from the AHA.
2: Oh, I wonder if they have the uh, the Catholics have a monopoly on quoting God. I mean, can the atheists put up a bus sign that says things like, you know, don't eat shellfish or stone your disobedient child, God. <laughs> you know, I mean, they can't be the only ones who attribute words to God. Why can't we just or, put, put
0: – Yeah, s- I, I think that would actually be a better strategy. I mean as Out far as – Out to lunch,
1: be back in a millennium, God.
0: I don't know if the billboard strategy is going to be so effective at promoting uh, atheism. At, uh, perhaps, I suppose, the mm-hmm. whole raising consciousness thing maybe. Right. Um, but yeah, something like that where it was taking actual scriptures that are scriptures people wouldn't really want. Right. Up there? One,
1: one on the side of a billboard. You know, and I'd love to. That's
0: not promoting atheism so much as just being, you know, Right. how are they going to argue against scripture?
1: Yeah, exactly. You put some of the filthy passages up there about uh, men who ejaculate like donkeys and and that sort of thing.
0: Or how about
2: the divorce, you know, he who divorces his wife lives in a- adultery. God.
1: There you go. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. put the scripture up there. They can't complain. And if they do complain, then um, it falls right back on them. Right. That's a that's a great idea. But I I really um, like this AHA campaign because it is positive. They're saying be good for goodness sake. You don't have to be good because of santa claus or jesus or any of that just be good
0: yeah i think it's less offensive than some of the bus campaign things i've heard oh yeah proposed and and, uh, and i think it's uh less ominous than things like the imagine no religion billboard that the ffrf right. was putting around because that i i mean i understand the purpose of it but that has some marxist overtones to it uh, sure and and i i'm not i'm not sure people are going to get the right message from that
1: right and the uh, bha the british humanist association uh said a month ago that they're going to start running ads that say quote there's probably no god now stop worrying and enjoy your life so yeah we have that and there are uh, more signage wars going on in this time of peace and love
2: the washington capital signs
1: yeah. State Capitol.
2: Yeah. So the Freedom from Religion Foundation, uh, got the lobbied for the right to put up their placard there next to the, uh, other religious displays. And it says, There are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven or hell. There's only our natural world. Religion is but myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. And so they got to put that up in the Capitol, uh, next to the other ones. And the, um, And then it was stolen. There was a twist. It was stolen and then recovered within a day and then put back there. Bill O'Reilly even did a piece on this saying that uh, it was equivalent to – the negativity was equivalent to saying something like, you know, if there's a display on Martin Luther King, they should have an anti-black display next to that.
1: Wow. Wow. Which I'm not sure is the – And I have to say it's not really that positive message that we necessarily want to have out there around – this time of year, it does seem like a fairly – I don't know if mean-spirited is the right term. But it's a, it's a very negative approach to well, something that it, should well, be –
0: It's on the opposite side of the George Washington bust uh, from the nativity scene. Yeah, yeah.
2: Now, here's what the, the FFRF guy said. Uh, his rationale was – yeah, his rationale was, look, um, this might all look cute with – I'm paraphrasing him, yes. like with baby and Jesus and such. But the Christian philosophy is that uh, if you don't believe in this uh, little dictator, you're going to burn in hell. Sure. So what's positive about that message?
1: Well, uh, that's a very good point.
0: I don't know. Can we be accused of inconsistency though? Is the, is the strategy to actually say, you know, look – if you're going to allow all viewpoints you're not going to be comfortable with that result so let's not right. have any or is it if if it's not a challenge to the legality of that or the wisdom even right. then shouldn't it be something more positive like uh some sort of like the humanist manifesto or something that that would sure. make more sense to me to put up you know if this is to say our worldview is one amongst others and mm-hmm. not just a big F you to everybody else right. in the room. Because
1: that's kind of how I read this sign, quite yeah. frankly. And I, and I like the FFRF, but um, they're, they tend to be fairly confrontational, which right. there is certainly a need for. But I feel like when it comes to holiday displays, we need to either keep them all away or if we're going to have the opportunity to do one alongside the – menorahs and the nativity scenes let's do something positive yeah uh, they've done in the past trees of knowledge i think they call them it's a it's a christmas tree with, with apples book and... covers on them mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing and that i think is much more positive and frankly aesthetically pleasing placard yeah. nice though it is 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 not much to look at
0: and, and it's more of ju- it's more of an issue than just what image are we putting out there for people to know it's also an it's also a Statement on consistency. Yeah, I think our side has some difficulty on where exactly do we stand on these issues and how do we be consistent. We say separation of church and state, but then mm-hmm. we will stick these things on. You have people like uh, the Pledge of Allegiance guy, um, Michael Newdow Yeah, Michael Newdow, um claiming that um, atheism is a religion. Well, but then we're arguing no, it's it's not a religion. It's right. the absence of it. Uh, we we have some. We have some very difficult problems when it comes to legal challenges and that sort of thing of being consistent. What is our position? Where do we come down well, on
2: these? Well, typically things? in these in a movement, there's there's two things. There's the um, don't offend anybody, do it for a PR value, in which mm-hmm. case the, mos- the, the message would be positive. Like in the gay rights movement, they were, you know, don't dress as a flaming, right. offensive homosexual. Just say I'm your family next door. And then there's the other yeah. part of the movement that says – it's the principle of the matter. It's to make a point, and in that case, sometimes you want to provoke people. You want and there's to be always out tension there. between be those those two things as yeah. as to what's the best PR versus what is in fact an accurate point that you want to
1: make. Yeah. No, that's that's true, and um, actually, that I think I guess ties we'll just in. Have
0: to live with that tension.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, but that ties in nicely with an email we got recently. This comes to us from Dwayne up at Ferris State University, which is just a little bit north of uh, Grand Rapids here. Starts off, thank you for the excellent podcast. Well, thank you for listening to it. Uh, I'm an atheist working to bring free thought to the Ferris State main campus, and I'm doing an exploratory group on Facebook. It's the Ferris State University Atheist, for those of you at Ferris State who are interested. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind saying a word or two about it on your next podcast. Now that I have shamelessly attempted to get you to plug my activism, it's okay. We love activism. We will shamelessly plug it.
0: Well, and and shameless as it was, two of us are employees for Fair State University, so kind of got to help your own.
1: And there is actually a um, CFI Fair State group that um, I'm not sure if they're active yet, but but we're trying to get one launched. So perhaps if you could pool your resources with the people involved with that, find them on Facebook. Um, Anyway, um, that was just a personal note to you there. Uh, He has a question for us that he'd like to hear our thoughts on. With the large influence of Christianity in America today, one wonders why atheism or rational thought isn't more prevalent. The ideals that freethinkers adhere to are not, at least maybe to us, are not seemingly too far-fetched for the general public. While great advances are currently being made in the awareness of our position, prominent intellectuals, books, news, movies, etc., why is it that we remain as the largest unheard minority in the country? Recent estimates place nonbelievers between nine and fifteen percent of the population. That sound about right to to you guys?
2: Depends on how you define it. There's probably a three or four percent atheist, another maybe three three percent agnostic, and but then you get another five or six that's like. Spiritual or yeah, don't or, care uh, a great you know a spirit not necessarily a god or the principles sure. of the universe. It's, it just really depends on how you ask the question.
0: Yeah. yeah, those statistics are abused by Bill Maher and and others when they just say the the blanket ten to fifteen. Right. Um, there's a large degree of nuance in that ten to fifteen that that but, describe themselves as non-religious. Right. But
1: there is a a large portion of people in the country who are not religious, sure. um, or who do not belong to. A organized religion, I guess, is, is mm-hmm. what we'd say. So it is a, it is a sizable group, certainly. Um, there have been great advances, he goes on to say, in our movements slash thoughts in the past as well. Where has the ground been lost and why? How can this be reversed or overcome? Is it that religion is so ingrained into our culture that we really do have so many atheists in the closet – Is it that the leaders or people that we look to to represent us so animatedly reject free thought? Is there a meme connection, as Dawkins seems to allude to? So what do you guys think? Why are we so invisible? That's such a big question. It's a very big question, (laughs) actually. Uh, And and
0: are we invisible? I mean, is the premise of the question even uh, correct? I mean, you could say certainly from looking at the bestseller list that, not invisible. There's a lot of people. You could say that broad cultural literacy is going to include a fair degree of, I mean, anybody who's educated in in history and literature is going to come across a a fair deal of skeptical viewpoints. and, and, uh, And if it's a question of, well, but yet people still don't seem to understand how a lot of atheists think and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. I, I would say, well, let's look at the statistics on how many religious believers actually know the doctrines of the Bible or know, or nor- know their own religion's faith claims. Saying, right. Uh, you, you, or know each other's. Yeah. yeah. The, the stats that have come out on that show the average you know, American's biblical literacy not to even mention these other religions, is woefully, woefully inadequate. So
1: I I would suggest, though, that where we are as a as a movement, as a group invisible, would be in Washington. Politicians pander to every other minority group, but they will run for the hills if they get connected to any kind of free thought group or, or anything like that. Yeah, I think culturally, I mean, House. House is an atheist, okay? And that's one of the most popular shows on television.
0: Uh, the Doctor. Yeah,
1: played by uh, Hugh Laurie, but who is they, himself a heathen.
2: They make it seem, though, as if that's synonymous with being a cranky, asocial. They don't. Edge because
1: um, Because uh, Dr. Cameron, uh, who is the sweet and wholesome and Uh, cares too much about her patients, doctor, is also an atheist on the show. Now, they don't make as big a point about that as they do with House, who's, you know, um, Luke-esque in his crankiness. But but certainly we do have uh, prominent figures in the entertainment industry, but it never makes it to the ballot box. It never makes it to actual policies for our country.
0: Well, you know, I don't know the exact answer. I'm sure there's a lot of different variables, but I'm sure a lot of that just comes down to prejudice. If people yeah, aren't, don't want definitely. to be, if people don't want to be associated with it, they're they're looking at the statistics as who people would vote for. Right. And it's not just atheists that encounter that political prejudice. oh uh,
1: look at look at Muslims.
0: Sure. Sure. So. So overcoming that, I, I suppose you just have to stay in there and mm-hmm. put a positive image forward. And uh, people need to communicate with their theist friends and be out there and say, "I'm a non-believer, and the devil doesn't have horns." Mm-hmm. But as as far as some sort of formula, what is the one thing that's making this the case? I I just you know don't know. It's a complex situation, and,
1: and it comes back to the whole idea about: Do we just you know keep our uh, heads down, be polite, and by example show people that we're good. Or do we get out there loud and proud, um, put up signs in Capitol buildings, and all of that, and and try to get in your face with that? I, I don't know. I guess our solution is to podcast. So there you go. That's our little contribution to the movement.
0: Like like Luke was saying, you know, this is true of every movement, and you know, it's mm-hmm. just, I, it's probably just going to have to remain that way. There's going to be the shock and awe folks, and then there's going to be the people coming in doing damage control. Right. I'm not really sure which ones we are.
1: (laughs) Yeah. A little bit of both. I think, yeah, I think we're a little bit of of both. I I guess so, yes. I'll be the cranky house. And if you uh, go through iTunes and check out the various other podcasts in our category there, religion and spirituality slash other, you'll find a little bit of both.
0: I think we're one of the least hardcore, actually, I listen so. to some we of
1: We need the more
2: other of an ones. edge, guys. Let's call it like Scorched Earth Podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm actually proud of our lack of edge. Yeah. I, I, but yeah. maybe that's just my... Chicken? Yeah.
2: You make peace. I've come to bring a sword and separate people.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, you're, so you're following Jesus' example. I'm following Jesus. I'm bringing a sword. Okay. Wow. Our, our good little Christian. All right. Well, let's get back into it. Our last episode... Cross-Examining the Four Witnesses Part 1 was one of our best-received episodes so far. We've gotten a huge response from it.
0: I was amazed. I, I actually was thought we were really risking something doing a two-parter on this because I mm-hmm. thought I didn't know if people would appreciate a one-parter, but instead we got gobs of feedback. You can, you can serialize it. You
1: know. Last we heard, the Bible was clinging to life. Tune in next week. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the the bad news of that is that means that expectations for this episode are raised. So let's uh, try not to disappoint them and let's get back into it. Uh, first, a brief recap of what we went over last week in our look at the four gospels.
0: Are the four gospels of the New Testament a historically reliable account of the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth? Many apologists say yes. The gospels represent the testimony of four independent witnesses. Their stories agree on all the essential details, yet each has their own unique take as we would expect from eyewitness testimony. On our cross-examination of the four witnesses part one, we challenge this notion. Here's a brief recap of those challenges. Number one, the synoptic gospels are not independent. A majority of their material they share, in Greek, word for word. This means the gospel writers copied each other or worked from a similar source. Number two, while this shared material is too similar to be independent, there are also significant differences you will find in the text. This is known as the synoptic problem. Number three, we've argued that the differences between these gospels are systematic and they point to different and incompatible conceptions of Jesus' nature, life, and teachings held by the individual gospel writers. Number four, the dominant theory to explain the synoptic problem is the two source theory. That is, that the synoptic gospel writers used both the book of Mark and another source that recorded the sayings of Jesus, which is lost to history. This other source is referred to by New Testament scholars as Q. Number five, the two source theory assumes Markan priority. Markan priority is the view that the gospel of Mark was written first and that's how it could be used as a source by Matthew and Luke. We presented many arguments in favor of Markan priority, too numerous to repeat here. If it is the case that the gospel writers present not a unified account, but rather an evolving conception of who Jesus was and that many of the claims about Jesus his life, nature, and teachings are not the record of history, but a record of these ancient editors' own beliefs, then the Christian religion cannot claim to rest its doctrines on fact, only faith, and that faith might very well be at odds with the truth.
1: And now, here it is, part two of our Skeptic Sunday School on the Four Gospels. So we talked a lot about um, reasons for mark and priority and the Q gospel and and all of that last week. What are some of the objections that apologists are throwing out there to this argument, Uh, the kind of claims and arguments that we made on our last episode?
0: We rattled off a lot of information in the last one. Yes, we did. And of course, there's going to be a lot of different criticisms. One place to start, and where I thought would be a valid place to start as mm-hmm. far as looking for how do apologists answer these, um, was to consult some of the big best selling apologists that are out right now. sure uh, Some of you may be aware of uh, the Christian apologist Lee Strobel, oh sure best known for his case for Christ book. I think in the last year or so, uh, Lee Strobel released. The Case for the Real Jesus, where he actually takes up a lot of the biblical scholarship relating to Jesus and who he was specifically. Mm -hmm. The New York Times bestseller.
1: We can't have all the bestsellers ourselves. We need to uh, share the wealth a little bit sometimes.
0: The subtitle of Strobel's book is A Journalist Investigates the Current Attacks on the Identity of Christ. So I picked this one up from the library to see what did Strobel have to say about some of the things that we brought up, Mark and Priority, Mm -hmm. uh, how do some of the authors change their accounts over time to reflect their own particular viewpoints.
1: This all sounds like very important stuff in a book about the real Jesus.
0: Yeah. Um, Strobel mentioned some of the sources we used, uh, such as Bart Ehrman, who we mentioned. He mentioned Robert Price and and others. Oh wow! But he doesn't actually address virtually anything we said in the last show. I I don't know what's really in this book. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm serious. I was really frustrated because I thought, oh, man, we can just spend the whole time taken sure. apart Strobel. There's
1: going to be tons of stuff in there, right? right?
0: It's a 300-page book that's all supposed to be about current biblical scholarship. Right. Most of it focuses on, you know, just kind of ridiculous ideas that we would agree are stupid, like mm-hmm. the Da Vinci Code stuff.
1: Oh, good thing he debunked that. Yeah. That
2: sounds straw Manny,
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then portions where they do begin to talk about stuff. There's um, there's his chapter called "Challenge Two: The Bible's Portrait of Jesus Can't Be Trusted Because the Church Tampered with the Text," mm-hmm. um, where he's uh, confronting some of Bart Ehrman's claims. Yeah. He spends a couple of pages talking about Bart Ehrman, mostly focusing on how he was a Christian when he was at Wheaton, but then became Somehow he got that education, you know, yeah. to poison the well. Well, yeah. everything else now is going to have to be bunk. Ad hominem attack. Yeah, yeah, if you're going to
2: do ad hominem, it works both ways.
0: He spends a couple of pages focusing on Bart Ehrman's analogy to telephone tag, uh, with with the transmission (laughs) of the Gospels. Uh You know this game telephone where you uh, you know, and he takes that as Bart Ehrman's entire argument. Now, Hmm. if you've read any of Ehrman's books, you know that that telephone tag analogy is for no other reason than just as a kind of a metaphor, right. To help you understand that, yes, one variant will then go on through the line and you can trace them back. Right. Bart Ehrman doesn't stake any of his positions on that. He's just trying to illustrate it's it. It's a helpful analogy. Yeah. Well, he yeah. he focuses several pages on that and then just switches to a Christian apologist uh, talking about his views on inerrancy. I mean there's, there's no – Substance. Mm. Now, isn't telephone? In the claims ta- ta- he's considering
2: the telephone tag is typically used to account for if it was an oral tradition and these people, separate sources, heard Jesus talking that they would the message would be passed down and there would be alterations that there, there were would be paraphrases. Right. Yes. So you you know he if Jesus actually said something like you know I want you to love your enemies and do good to those who mistreat you somebody might say. Um, treat people better who mistreat you, and love for enemies is a good thing, or they would paraphrase it, right? Right. right. So you wouldn't find word-for-word word passages there between the Gospels. Like so it, we do. So, we so that's a critique. I mean, yeah. I would think that's a, that's a well, critique of—
0: that's part of his point. I think his broader point is uh, looking at the manuscripts, uh, the copyist errors. Just to say if, oh. if we have an error at one point, everybody who's copying that manuscript is going to repeat that. And you can actually go back then through the manuscripts and you can actually determine, you, you can actually trace this line. When did this mistake first occur?
1: Kind of like around a genetic what time? Mutation
0: which is funny because Strobel goes on to basically agree with the same thing. He says, mm-hmm. "Well, this isn't a problem because we can with good accuracy." He actually, you know, affirms redaction criticism. We can actually <laughs> with good accuracy piece together what was probably the most original account. This isn't a problem. Well, Ehrman doesn't disagree. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he you know, Nor do that's we. right. So, it's barely even a straw man. It's it's almost as if he's echoing Ehrman's point with that analogy just trying to pretend like he refuted it
1: right
2: I've had a student before ask me they say well uh, if you're going to say that some of the things are word for word and that other things are different you're that's contradictory because you're having you're saying it's too good and then not good enough I think the point is though is when you read the different gospel accounts It's not mixed together. It's word for word in passages. Then the passages will stop the word for word, and then there will be something added on that's not in the other ones. Now, again, if it was four different people or whatever, different uh, points of view listening to it, you would have the differences mixed together. You would have them Mm -hmm. not be word for word things. What you actually see, though, in the Bible is chunks of passages that are word for word and then mixed and matched and and whole sentences placed in different locations. How could that possibly be accounted for by just people paraphrasing things. Which gives us evidence
1: for for the Q gospel. Those are the word-for-word passages.
0: Well, some of the replies to that has been to say perhaps we're underestimating just how accurate an oral tradition can be because there's different types of oral traditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's stuff like that telephone tag game. But there's also oral traditions where the focus on preserving the accuracy of the account is, is much more strong. Right.
2: Like they have in Quranic things where they memorize things and you're graded on how much you, how much you can reproduce on the original text.
1: Right. Or in uh, Fahrenheit 451 where everyone has a book that they memorized and that's, that's their job is to know that book so right. they can pass it on to the next generation. I hope I didn't ruin the ending of that book for anyone who hasn't read it.
0: I thought it was a cooking guide. Edna Lineman wrote a book, Is There a Synoptic Problem, Mm. that's gotten some uh, circulation amongst apologists. She defends this idea. She says that the word-for-word agreement with the different synoptic authors, these are rote memorization techniques that Mm -hmm. rabbis and pupils had in the ancient world. And so the people who wrote the Gospels would have been at Jesus' feet for three years right, um, doing this uh, uh, like the rabbi and pupil set up, sure. and they would have been carefully told and wrote memorized these things word for word. This is a quote from a summary of this problem from a website Reality Disease blog.
1: Reality Disease?
0: Yeah, I'm, I don't know what that means. Okay. The guy they have reporting there says modern studies in Middle Eastern societies show that in local Local stories of the oral tradition are generally told in a standard form. Interestingly, researchers such as Travis Dorico have determined that the percentages of similarities and differences found in various tellings of the same stories are remarkably close to those found between the synoptic gospels. Oftentimes even in modern Middle Eastern villages, the exact same words are used in different tellings of the same story. Erroneous modifications to the real story, though, are promptly corrected by others who know the story verbatim. So he thinks Mm -hmm. that modern studies and then uh, Linnemann's hypothesis of the uh, rote memorization together could account for why all these things would be preserved verbatim. Of course, that's bullshit.
2: Yeah, I mean, okay, first of all, then how would it explain the ordering of the events in between the Gospels? That is, Matt and Luke both follow Mark's order of the events. Mm -hmm. Right. All right so if somebody's just saying, "Oh I, rem- I memorized what Jesus said, they would not, why would they have the enfolding in- of the story follow the same order as well? They, why would they memorize that in order, and also why would the um, some of the nonverbal passages of Jesus, the things that described what he said and did be the same,
1: including the stuff that he said and did when he was alone right, okay, right. and then the other right. thing
2: is what yeah. about passages where nobody else was present? It was somebody yeah, taking dictation right. when Jesus was arguing with Pilate? When he was talking to the devil in the wilderness? When he was alone and in the Garden of Gethsemane? Those, why would those yeah. be word for word? Why, why would those be word for word? And what about the Greek, his quotes of the Greek Septuagint rather than the uh, Hebrew Scriptures? When they have Jesus say stuff like, and then he quoted from the Scriptures rather than as Jesus, as we know from thanks to Mel Gibson, he spoke, he speaks Aramaic, or yeah, you know yeah. uh, there would be a Hebrew memorization of Scripture, but instead with the Gospels being in Greek. They put it in a from the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. So, like for example, in uh, Matthew chapter thirteen, uh, verses fourteen, he says the prophecy of Isaiah, and then he goes blah 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 and quotes from Isaiah, but the Greek version, not the Hebrew version. Right. So why? Who is there taking somebody taking dictation, and then they say, "Oh, I'm going to actually alter what Jesus said and make it Greek."
1: now, now right. I have to say I actually have uh, greater faith in oral tradition than I think a lot of people do. Um personally, and I'm not entirely trying to be facetious here, but I think if I didn't have to have seventeen different passwords memorized for hmm. every different thing, pins for my my debit card and all what of that. What are some of those, uh, those passwords <laughs> and pins? It, well, we have so much stuff now that we have to keep in our heads. And so much stuff that we don't have to because it's accessible. We have books. We have the Internet. I think humans have a much larger capacity to memorize things than we give ourselves credit for. I'm not going to poo-poo oral tradition as that's ridiculous. I don't
0: think we're doing that either. And I think there's other places you can go to to look at oral tradition like the Vedas, the study of the Hindu Vedas. Absolutely. um, Where they had – they thought that pronunciation of each syllable – you know, if you messed mm-hmm. up one of those syllables in the Vedas, you could end up turning it into a curse, kind of like uh, Army of Darkness, the right. Kletu, varata, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh Yeah. Uh, um, but our argument here is not based on oral tradition being in- inadequate. Our right. argument here is that the pattern of agreements and disagreements in the text does not suggest – That this was purely oral tradition. Right. This was working from a text that may have itself been based on an oral tradition. I'd like to read something from James Still, his essay, The Synoptic Problem and Bias, that you can find on internetinfidels.org. James Still, in response to Lineman's theory of rote memorization. Mm -hmm. Still says, if Lineman's theory were correct, we would expect word for word agreement in Jesus' core teachings, only general agreement in the broad details of the narrative events, and little, if any, memory of the teachings of John the Baptist or another teacher altogether. Yet the narrative divergences and word for word agreements do not support this theory he mentions the Lord's Prayer is only loosely preserved while the Baptists' teaching, John the Baptist's in Luke and Matthew, Mm -hmm. parallel word for word between Matthew and Luke. Linnemann's hypothesis is an ad hoc modification to the evangelical belief that the Gospels preserve the exact words of Jesus. Mm -hmm. But we've seen that the oral tradition did not preserve his teaching word for word. Let's take a look at that example he shares with the Lord's Prayer real quick. If you look In Luke, Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, here you have, Father, hallowed hallowed be your name, let your kingdom come, give us our daily bread every day, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves have forgiven everyone who is indebted to us, and do not lead us into temptation. Matthew's account it shares with Luke's, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, while it adds the who is in heaven says, let your kingdom come. Then it adds the famous, let your will be done, even on earth as it is in heaven. That's not in Luke. Mm. It says, give us today our daily bread. Kind of shortens that extra redundant passage every day. I was going to say,
1: that irritated me.
0: It says, and forgive our debts as we have forgiven those who are our debtors. And it says, and do not lead us into temptation, as Luke's account says, but it adds to it, but deliver us from evil. If you go to Mark Mark has a simple one-liner.
1: Really? I just flew
0: in from Nazareth, <laughs> and boy my arms tired. Ba-dum-bum. Here, Mark Mark eleven twenty-five. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And that's all he wrote.
1: And of course we would expect something like that from Mark, because like we talked about on the previous episode, Mark is the earliest, it's the crudest, it's uh doesn't have all the fancy flourishes the others do
2: so it is that is like you know uh, if you if people are going around disciples are memorizing jesus's texts uh, his speaking's word for word boy mm-hmm. you'd think that they would get it right on at least the lord's prayer uh that that would be a passage they could probably and that's not even close to being uh they they share some about what what is that 50 percent similarities and then matt tacks on a bunch of other stuff well and mark well, is entirely different why is that not memorized word for word in the same way that other
0: things are Right, right. Why would these some of these details, just details, be fiercely preserved? They, just, they really applied their rote memorization techniques right. to the absolute max, yet essential things like the Lord's Prayer Or Jesus'
1: last words on the cross. Jesus' last you know, words on the cross that, is th- that's another something That's something, when I was a believer, I never deal.
2: really noticed why they made an effort to go into a different language to say, like in Mark, he says, that, and then Jesus said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I I never really put it together like, okay, so uh, he's, I mean, I'm reading the English version. Why would there be a different language there? Uh, It never occurred to me. And then when you say, well, that's actually the reason they're quoting that is because it's from Scripture. It's from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, somebody could say well those words appeared divinely on Jesus' lips as he's being you know, suffocated on the cross but uh, another explanation that's more likely is that the gospel writers looked back into scripture to find something that would be appropriate to put on his right. on his words. mouth yeah. and so they put that on that but what's mm-hmm. even more devastating though is that the picture of Jesus you know we talked about uh, like uh, Christmas stories and resurrection stories but they, they, they differ systematically that's a suffering Jesus by the time you get to John he's like it is finished and he dies when he's damn good and ready to die. There's right. yeah, no right. crying out in despair. Well,
1: let's... and in the in the book of Thomas, I believe Jesus' last words are either these curtains go or I do. <laughs> Actually. That there,
0: explains but... the tearing of the curtain. Exactly.
1: <laughs> not... Yes. Either okay. these curtains go okay. or I do.
0: Well, that's a that's another good example. Let's uh let's look at these the seven last words of Jesus. Bart Ehrman talks a lot about this in his book uh on the New Testament. He points out that people who try to harmonize these verses and tie them all together in one account, they are erasing the distinctive views of each. Didn't they
2: try that? The guy, what was his (laughs) name? Tatian. There's a diatessaron of Tatian where he tried to cram all four of them together, Mm -hmm. uh, and it just didn't work. Mel Mel Gibson Gibson did did. Did too.
0: It just doesn't work. So, uh, for example, this is in a lot of different liturgies, uh, liturgies, some that you would hear uh, around the holiday season. Mm -hmm. Um, These are the seven last words of Jesus. If you take them all together, it would be the first statement is, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing." Second statement, "Truly, I I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise." Says that to the Mm -hmm. one robber. Third statement, "Woman, here is your son." Fourth, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Fifth, "I am thirsty." Six, "It is finished." Seven, "Father, into your hands I commend my spirit." Now. That's what they would expect us to believe if we harmonize them. This, this was kind of the sequence mm-hmm. of what Jesus said. Well, that's fine. There's nothing there that contradicts. But when you break them apart into their own respective gospels, um, in Mark, all you get is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he
1: croaks, right? Which
0: is that's from Psalm 22,
2: and also the gambling for the clothes. That's also in Psalm 22. They cast lots for my garment, sort of thing. Right, and he's he's in pain and he's alone, suffering. It's it's consistent with the rest of Mark, which is Jesus is is uh, kind of a haunted, suffering guy. Right,
0: it's consistent with other verses. Say, uh, for example, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in in Mark's account, um, Jesus falls to the ground then he pleads three times to god please remove this cup from me and of course in his on the cross he feels forsaken, forsaken. by god yeah. well let's let's forward uh, to to luke mm-hmm. to luke's account now we talked a lot about matthew and mark last time we didn't talk about the distinctive differences in luke right in luke a lot of these where you hear where he has changed things from mark and other places it's consistent with the theme of jesus being a prophet not just a prophet, but a prophet to the whole world and not just to he Judaism. He
2: adds the Gentiles because, as we know, Luke and Acts are two uh, two books set where he does ministry to Gentiles, not just the other Jews. Right. And so it's a consistent theme that Jesus would be somebody who's not here just for the Jews. Right. And he's also a good Roman citizen. He's not going to threaten things. So yeah. if, if in the crucifixion account, the whole three robbers thing, that's only in uh, in, right. in Luke that they have a commentary between these two guys that are in In between their suffocation, managed to say, oh, we're guilty of something, but this man isn't. So they actually have the guy's comment on how he wasn't guilty of something. Hint, hint. Right. He's a good guy.
0: And the Satyrian seems to know what's going on. You you get a lot of Gentiles knowing exactly what – do
1: we know what? that Luke, the, the no Luke, the, the same author wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts? He yeah, says so.
0: Yeah, that's we do. Okay, pretty confident. No, not too many. Because I'd always been taught that,
1: that and, and I'm finding that everything I learned but, in um, the middle of school was wrong.
0: Jesus' last words in Luke are these: "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing." And then, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Then he says, "Father, into your hands I commend uh, your spirit." Now. He's confident here, not like the Jesus uh, in Mark, who is, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's confident that that day he's going to be in paradise. Yeah. Well, um, Luke, if you look at the Garden of Gethsemane passage in Luke, there Jesus only asks once as opposed to three times in Mark to remove this cup from me. To You know, hopefully, God, I won't have to go through this crucifixion. He only does it once instead of three times, and they they tack onto it. Luke tacks onto it, if you are willing. Mm. Matthew tacks that on too. He says not what I want, but what you want. But yeah, Luke tacks it on as if you are willing, and the rest of the time he seems pretty calm and collected. There is that passage in Luke where uh, where Jesus sweats blood, which sure doesn't sound calm or collected, um, but it's pretty clear that that was a later addition to later manuscripts the earliest ones Jesus is cool calm in the garden of gethsemane he's confident he knows from the very beginning he's a prophet prophets go to jerusalem to die right. that's that's what he's here for and because he's going to die this is going to free up this rejection by the jews is going to free up salvation to go to the gentiles
1: right. and he's going to paradise that afternoon
0: yes
2: and by the time you, yeah. and then for more extreme, by the time you get to John, he he's not suffering at all. He's not crying at all. He says, "I'm thirsty," and then he, he uh, says, "It is finished," and dies. So right. he does it when he's damn good and ready, well, and there's thirsty, no crying. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and what is John? What does John say about the Garden of Gethsemane? Here, we don't have Jesus pleading at all mm-hmm. to be forgiven. In fact, he sets it up as like a hypothetical. In John, it says. Now my soul is troubled, and when should I say, Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Any hesitancy, any trying to bail out is completely removed. He's saying, "That, that would be ridiculous, the whole reason why I came here. Was for this purpose, and he's
2: also in control of Pilate too. He, he has a del- de- lengthy debate with Pilate. What is truth, Pilate? And so he's actually in control of what Pilate does. Uh, you know, so that you have this whole extended systematic portrayal. By the time you get to John, of, of Jesus being God Himself, which is consistent with the whole theme of of John that Jesus is not just some haunted, uh, suffering Messiah. He's God Himself, and he's going right. to be in control of the whole right. show. And, so and
1: anyone who can think about thirst while being crucified. He's a pretty cool customer. That's also from
2: Psalms too, by the way. They had Psalms be the the thirsty thing. His mouth was dry in Psalms.
1: Uh.
0: So again, is this consistent with the idea of, as one apologist says, wouldn't a more likely explanation for this common material be that the gospel writers were all discussing the same core of historical data surrounding the same central figure? If you accept apologeticpress.org's version of it by Mm. Brad Bromling— Do you think it would be more consistent to accept that as an explanation or to accept what we've been saying that, look, these differences are systematic? Mm -hmm. They actually inform us as to what the particular biases of the authors are, and they edited their texts accordingly. The Garden of Gethsemane, the seven last words of Jesus, they match up along the themes of individual gospel writers perfectly. They're edited to fit in with those particular – conceptions of Jesus that you find in those individual gospels. Mm-hmm. If you're just harmonizing this stuff, you're not getting the real picture of any of them.
2: And then and then what's even worse is some of them actually admit that they're different portrayals of Jesus, but then say that is part of the whole plan to show the different sides of him as being, you know, the the prince of peace, the wonderful this and what. Well. Right. I think that's even worse in some ways because then you're saying, OK, you're right. There are differences here. They're systematic and, they, and they're, they're contradictory in some aspects, aspects. But, hey, it's just as part of the whole plan to show the different sides of Jesus that then you're off into unfalsifiable territory. Right. Yeah. Was, was he short and tall at the same time? If somebody accepts that as an explanation, could he say anything that could possibly be
1: right exactly. uh, a
2: contradictory to something else you you 've then entered the realm of he could say anything, and it would just be oh well that 's another interesting view of Jesus that contradicts another view right
1: right, and that 's really the one i was I was taught in middle school was that idea that these are all different it 's all the same jesus, but it 's we're looking at him through different lenses each time.
2: So when he's the same, it's because it's divinely inspired and they all scribble down the exact same thing. And when he's different, it's because God wants to show us different sides of Jesus. Right. I mean how could you, how right. could you possibly falsify that? Mm-hmm.
0: Right. That's why the majority of scholars don't accept this idea that, that these gospels are independent witnesses. There's just too much evidence to the contrary. Now, there are some arguments that will accept the fact that these texts are dependent on one another, but they try to uh, they try to get around mark and priority they don 't believe Mark is first now Mark and priority isn 't essential to most of the things that right. we 've been saying we 've just been comparing differences, but it does the importance of mark and priority is that it does give us a framework for understanding how these things evolve, so what we just talked about the seven last words of Jesus. If Mark is the first and he's the suffering servant, he's the one that is forsaken by God, and you keep on adding up to the time you get to John to this very calm, collected Jesus who is absolutely confident and doesn't want to bail at all.
1: Who is God? Who's, yeah,
0: you can see yeah. that historical progression. You can say, well, you know, the simpler less divine form of Jesus was the King. first.
2: And that's and that's the devastating – that's why they defend uh, – criticize Mark and priority the right. most if you're evangelical because then you're already admitting that the earliest one is the most stripped-down, least godlike right. Jesus. Right. And then probably the single most devastating thing for that is that Mark's the one that we know that has the resurrection story that was tacked on. That's the right. The last right. chapter – our earliest copies of Mark – don't have a resurrection. The women
0: go to the well, tomb. Well, that, that's empty. not that's not entirely true. They but, do have a resurrection, but it leaves with the women being afraid they, and not they leave telling the tomb, anybody yeah. that they saw the angel. They're there. scared. They
2: leave the tomb. Right. The tomb is empty, but it doesn't have all those post appearances no, where he gives no, anything. Jesus doesn't
0: go around and visit
1: people. So
2: it's important that if if Mark and priority is correct. There's a there's th- then the earliest accounts might not even have had anything after the the empty tomb.
1: Right, right, and that that was going to be my question: is what is the problem with having Mark and this Q Gospel as the sources for the other Gospels? Why why is this an issue that needs to be well, the, apologized the, the, the for?
2: The Q is fought again, I think, because it gives a picture of Jesus as not. Going around focusing on his divinity and saying otherworldly stuff. He's focused on this world, social justice, on on things that are like, you know, basically cynic type sayings of traveling poor sages that say, you know, like Socrates – he sounds a lot like Socrates, right. you know, challenging conventional wisdom. Yeah. He's not interested in all this other religious stuff.
0: But if I was an apologist, I would I would concede the ground of uh, – if, if you can't maintain onto the literary independence of these texts, which I don't think you can, that mm. these are four separate witnesses, yeah. you can at least save a little bit of ground if you deny mark and priority, if you deny Q. The picture of Jesus then, you, we still have to deal with the synoptic problem. There's still those differences. But – you know, you, you don't have to conclude that, well, all the divinity stuff was tacked on. So what are some of the arguments against Mark in priority? Mm. Uh, what, or, or another way of putting that is what are some of the alternatives to this two-source theory that we've been talking about, Mark and sure. Q as a source? Uh, what are the alternatives to that in answering the synoptic problem? One of the most famous ones historically has been called the Augustinian hypothesis. Hmm. It's called that because Augustine of Hippo was the one who proposed this originally.
1: So it's been around for a while. Yeah. Why come up with new arguments when you have ones from centuries back that uh, make perfect sense?
0: Yeah, apologists can save a lot of time really relying Once, on I, those old I, arguments. After
1: Thomas Aquinas, there's really uh, – there's nothing else to to deal with. Just tweaking. Yep.
0: Augustine of Hippo wrote um, – and this was around the, the 5th century. He wrote – Now, those four evangelists whose names have gained the most remarkable circulation over the whole world and whose number has been fixed at four, so he's talking about the four gospels, Mm -hmm. are believed to have been written in the order which follows, first Matthew, then Mark, third Luke, and lastly John. And however, they may appear to have kept each of them a certain order or narration proper to himself, so he's recognizing the synoptic problem right there. He says, this is certainly not to be taken as if each individual writer chose to write in ignorance of what his predecessor had done. So Augustine of Hippo is saying, look, there's these differences, the synoptic problem. Um, these are dependent sources. They knew of each other. They were written dependently. But um, they have been written in this order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Matthean priority is the mm. case here, not Markin priority. Uh, and then the the apologists will then expand this to argue. Um, this was one that I found on catholicanswers.org. Oh, so love that site. So the Catholic Church is particularly invested in this because they want to preserve the legacy of the church fathers too. Right. But uh, supposedly similar statements in Irenaeus, Origen, and Eusebius. Uh, Eusebius quoting Clement, who goes all the way back in, you know, like 90— 90 AD, we're talking like within the same century as Jesus, all quote these as saying that Mark was not first. And so they say, well, these church fathers were the closest to the tradition. They were the earliest. Wouldn't they know better how these gospels were collected uh, and, and edited, possibly if they were? I mean, how can we
1: argue with the... Right. Uh,
0: Do we really think that our modern-day scholars just l- dealing with the manuscripts and the texts are going to have a better idea of how they were composed than the church fathers?
1: Right. The I, church fathers I, could have just looked at the copyright date. I, I
0: find this the,
2: the, the least believable, that somebody would believe that, as we said, that's, that Matt contains a, an infancy story and all that, uh, and, and that it's just cut out. The author of Mark just says, hmm, well, oh, divine birth, you know, uh, in Bethlehem. no. I'm going to just start with his baptism, I think. Yeah. So on, on a story level, he would have had to cut out all that stuff. So that's f- the first thing I don't believe. The second thing on the language level, he would have cruded down the Greek. He would take mm-hmm. Mark's adequate right. Greek, not as good as Luke's, but he would then essentially make it even more uh, less grammatical yeah. and have a lot of, you know, and, and, ands. And, that's the other thing that uh,
0: makes this impossible for yeah. me. The whole Greek, <laughs> why would they take why would they take good Greek that you find in Matthew and, and Luke dumb it down and dumb it down into bad well, for Mark? And then yeah. and
2: then third with the Q stuff. So Matt would contain the stuff that we call Q, a lot of sayings of Jesus. Mark omits them. Luke includes that back again. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. How would, so? Or, or that Luke is copying from Mark and includes the so. So why would Mark systematically remove any of the material that would involve Q-type stuff? Right.
0: Right. Well, a, a, a modern version of this, of the Greisbach hypothesis, actually has Mark using Matthew and Luke together. So Mark um,
1: comes third, but then Mark is removing he his two sources are Matthew and Luke, and of course whatever else, and he removes all of the stuff that's in both those books and right, says, right. you know, these sayings that are in both of my sources, non important, not just, important, just rip them out, skip it. The birth yeah, it story goes to simpler whatever.
0: versions of the Lord's Prayer, uh, goes and, to, and it all
2: seems to come down to you know. like they're saying it could happen this way. Well, okay, a lot of things could happen, but is it the most likely explanation? Right.
0: Well, how do you address, though, the the whole church fathers? Were they just wrong? Yes. Yes, they were just wrong. It's entirely <laughs> possible that they maybe did not understand these things all that clearly. And you know what I find is funny because uh, it's not just Catholic apologists that do this too. Right. It's hardcore evangelical literal Bible inerrant people that, that – will make these arguments too. Oh, but the church fathers, they are witnesses outside of the biblical sources that say they were written in this order and taken as accurate. Are they aware of some of the things that the church father believed? Mm -hmm. I mean, we should almost just grant this to them to watch them squirm around uh, some of the other things. Uh, For example, most of these claims about the order of the writing of the gospels, whether Matthew was first most of these, you can all boil it down to some quotes from Clement. We have it quoted in Eusebius. Eusebius quotes Clement saying, uh, In the same volumes, Clement has found room for tradition of the primitive authorities of the church regarding the order for the gospel. In this, he used to say the earliest gospels were those containing the genealogies, so that would be Matthew and Luke, while marks originated as followed. When at Rome, Peter openly preached the word by the Spirit and pronounced the same gospel. The large audience urged Mark, who had followed him for a long time and remembered what it said to write it all down. Well, okay, we take this from Clement. Let's look at some of the other things that Clement believes here. And would the apologists like to sign on to this? This again from that essay from James Still on Internet Infidels. Still says... Well into the second century, apocryphal gospels were still used in Alexandria and elsewhere and considered authoritative alongside the canonical gospels. Clement of Alexandria used the gospel of the Hebrews and the Egyptians, Jude, the apocalypse of Peter, as well as the shepherd of Hermas, Barnabas, and the Didache. Justin Martyr tells us that the memoirs of the apostles, perhaps referring to Matthew and Luke, Mm -hmm. were being used for liturgical purposes in Rome. However, Justin did not consider them to be holy scripture and freely adapted and revised them to create a single harmony. His student Titan will later create the Diatessaron a harmony that omitted and redacted material from the four Gospels, which was very popular, circling widely in West as well as in Syria. Now, if they're going to take the church fathers as evidence on this Mm -hmm. and poo-poo the biblical scholars who uh, find a different conclusion, are they going to pick up the Gospel to the Hebrews, the Gospel to the Egyptians, the Apocalypse of Peter, Shepherd of Hermas, are they going to pick up all these and consider them canonical?
2: This is all previous to when, when things were finally canonized, at the present Bible state it was like the right. year 350, something like that. So if you'd go in early church fathers, they were still having debates about right. stuff that we consider now uh, a uh, traditional Christian would consider a fringe mm-hmm. element, like sure. whether Jesus was this or that, right. or, or these crazy gospels that, that we would just that are rejected. And today. if
0: they're hoping to preserve their account of Jesus and say this is all historical. Uh, by appealing to the church fathers, my gosh, that opens a a, a bag of worms. Because if we were to look at these other texts and bring that into our account of Jesus— they use, would not be prepared to accept many of the things right, that are Right. There's the
1: one where Jesus is a fish monster, which is a, a particular <laughs> favorite of mine. But uh, I, d-
0: I don't think that one's in that list.
2: Oh. Yeah, and then you have – well, the, they're geographically distributed differently. Like different uh, four gospels are are more well-known to people living in like say Syria or Turkey as opposed to Egypt as opposed to you know, which uh, a Greece. Which makes perfect
1: sense that you'd have your regional version of the story. Yeah, you and, see that all –
2: and so we uh, we would look at that and say, well, clearly the different communities wrote the Gospels to appeal to their community. Yeah. Right. If you're a Jew and you, and you think that, you know, then you read Matt or something like that. But clearly the early church fathers would pick on the basis that made it their point of view, the most relevant point of view. It's right. not on some scholarly basis like, well, this looks like the earliest Greek or something that's more objective. It's based on subjective. I think that Matt should be first because it promotes my view the best. Right.
1: And the early church fathers, this is not even as relatively clear cut as the founding fathers of, of our country go. The, the early church fathers are this broad group of people from all sorts of different places. You know, this isn't a group of men sitting around in one room right. wearing powdered wigs making decisions. This is a very broad label.
0: Right, right. And and yeah, and another thing we didn't mention is that the church fathers disagree themselves about yeah. the order. And threaten to peace, so. excommunicate
2: and right. burn at the stake people that they didn't agree with. So.
0: Some final objections to consider before we wrap this all up is criticisms against Q itself. And the most common one I find in the uh, apologist literature simply appeals to the fact that we don't have Q. So it's not there. because we don't have a copy of the text Q, you know, this is a ridiculous hypothesis. One source here, this is apologeticspress.com about Q, um, they say, by distilling the gospel material that is common to Matthew and Luke and absent in Mark and printing it in a separate gospel, this ignores the question as to whether or not the Q hypothesis is the best explanation for the commonality. So there is a kind of a – almost an Occam's razor argument here. Mm -hmm. Should we accept a theory where we have to posit this text outside, a hypothetical text like Q? Sure. Isn't that an extra thing in your theory? Um, Yeah. But the other part of Occam's razor is – that we take the simplest explanation that accounts for the most amount of data. They're right. com- so what, it's and these simpler, what's the competing yes, explanation? The simplest
1: explanation is God well, did it. And this is where he
0: says a more likely explanation is that the gospel writers were discussing the same core of historical data surrounding the central figure. Well, we've well, already seen why data. that's bunk. So you can't pull Occam's razor on this one because – That's the reason why Q is hypothesized, anyways, is because there's no other way to make sense of these common materials to make
1: Occam's Razor work, and just have these two sources. Right,
0: right, and and in addition to that, as as Luke pointed out last week, we found with the Gospel of Thomas something a gospel that would be in the same or similar form. That the Q Gospel has, we have a precedent for believing that gospels like this existed. So that is indirect evidence.
2: Right. There were communities that were interested in the sayings of Jesus that that they didn't have an interest in the narrative so much, like passion stories or this or right. origin stories of where he came from. That were primarily interested in what he said, where he's just distributing little nuggets of things. And the material in Thomas and then the um, the Q materials are very similar. There's a high percentage of overlap.
1: Am I the only one here who thinks it's really funny that the apologists refuse to believe in something just because they haven't seen it? (laughs) I mean, what has happened here? Well, (laughs) we're the ones putting faith in this thing that we we haven't seen. It it is ridiculous. Uh. But,
0: you know, when it comes down to it, even that's a little bit mistaken because we do have Q. We have Q in Matthew and Luke. Yes. We have Q preserved for us. And even if it's even if it's not just one single source queue even if even if there it's may not have been multiple yeah, queues. Yeah. even if the queue has more text than would be in either Matthew or Luke, that's not important. What's important is that they shared a similar source right. outside of Mark that we don't have anymore that's the real the real point, not what literally may have been included in. Document Q or right. not?
1: It, it may actually, as I've hypothesized in, in my uh, thesis, is that um, Q was actually a collection of greeting cards um, from a very early uh, uh, Hallmark kind of company. So it's it, you know it's just sayings of Jesus that were collected, and, and Matthew and Luke gathered up their cards and, uh, and wrote them into the Gospels.
0: Well, isn't that special? Yeah. So to conclude. I would like to read a brief paragraph from Tim Callahan's book, Secret Origins of the Bible, where he summarizes this pretty well. Callahan writes, My reason for challenging the testimony of the four witnesses are as follows. We would not believe in the testimony if the supposed witnesses garbled the chronology and the history of what he had supposedly lived through. If one or more of the witnesses had widely differing testimony on a key issue in the case, John... Mm -hmm. Their conflicting testimonies would have to be discounted if it's obvious that one witness is merely parroting the words of another or was found to be quoting testimony from another trial. The synoptics, even frequently using the same phrases, we would naturally throw out his testimony. If the testimony of other witnesses who had differing accounts of what happened were arbitrarily excluded from the trial by a judge, we would suspect that the trial was rigged. All of these problems are seen in the testimony of the gospel witnesses. And with that, the doubtcasters rest their case.
1: That about does it for us this week. One quick word. Uh, We got an email recently from the host of Q Transmissions, which is a weekly skeptical call-in talk show in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And they are doing a contest asking people to send in their best rendition of a new Atheist Anthem. You can read about this contest at qtransmissions.wordpress.com. And that's the letter Q and the word transmissions, no dashes or spaces or anything like that Uh, so please check that out and uh, come up with your songs if you have something good let us know what you have too that's all for us for this time
0: tune in next time for uh, Nika Nika Nikolali. she's going to join us for the holidays
1: Mm -hmm. our present to you thanks for listening